Welcome to Politics and Reform, where we'll be talking about a variety of topics pertaining to criminal justice reform, police brutality, systemic racism, and issues within our regional communities. We're here to talk and inform not only ourselves, but our audience with the opinions and critiques of those individuals that practice in these fields. Today, we're here with Pamela Price, a Yale Law School graduate, a civil rights attorney, and an Alameda County Democratic Central Committee member who has spent her entire career fighting for justice. Pamela, it's great to talk with you today. Thank you for having me. Of course, and, and just as a uh, reminder, how are you doing uh, in this world of COVID? Uh, very well for COVID, given the circumstances, yeah. very well. <laughs> yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, that, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm doing well myself, so, you know, the more blessings we can spread. Uh, so without further ado, let's get started with our first question. Now, uh, Pamela, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about your coming of age and, and life story, as well as your activism? You know, what inspired you to pursue politics and criminal justice reform so heavily? Sure. Uh, I am a child of the 60s and the early 70s. I came of age when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was demonstrating uh, throughout this country and the country was in turmoil around racial justice and social justice and the Vietnam War. And I, as a young person, absorbed all of that. Uh, and my life literally uh, just took a complete different turn with the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I was radicalized in a moment. I became a very angry uh, young black woman. I did not understand how a man who stood for peace and love and justice could be assassinated. That just, in my young mind, it did not compute. And so it was a very tumultuous time. And certainly for the next four years, I became very active in the civil rights movement. I was involved in demonstrations. I got arrested in a demonstration uh, when I was 13 years old. I got prosecuted, um, incarcerated, um, and labeled a juvenile delinquent. I was in the foster care system already, and that did not sit well with the foster care authorities <laughs> that I was getting arrested in demonstrations and being radical. Uh, so that didn't go over too well. Um, and it made my life much more difficult as well. But by the grace of God, I survived it. I dropped out of high school when I was 16, uh, emancipated myself, walked away from foster care because I felt like I could do bad all by myself. Right. Um, and so I ended up, you know, the last year and a half of my high school year, pretty much raising myself, um, being mentored, and, and I give honor always to my three foster mothers, Amy Jenkins, Lorena O'Donnell, and Alice Aaron, because literally these women kept their hands on me and would not let me throw my life away. They were very supportive of what I was trying to do and of me trying to find myself and figure out who I was and the thing that they kept telling me uh, was get your education. That's the one thing that no one can take from you. So get your education. And that was drilled into me. My mom, my birth mom was a teacher. And so I was blessed from the very beginning of my life to have somebody in my life that was willing to invest in myself and my sister. And so I got an early education 
as a child uh, from a wonderful teacher, and that stayed with me through the rest of my life. When I had dropped out of high school and was living on my own and trying to make it, somehow, by the grace of God, I got accepted to Yale College and got to go to Yale on a full scholarship, and my entire life changed. So education is a game changer. For me, it was literally a game changer. And because of that, I got to go to Yale, I got to come to California and go to UC Berkeley. And so because of my experiences as a young person, because of my being in tune with the civil rights movement as a young person, when I came out of law school and throughout my law career, I've understood the importance of being an activist and the importance of advocating for social justice and racial justice and the importance of being who you are and standing in your own shoes and based on your own experience and bringing that to the law, which has allowed me to do some wonderful things as a lawyer. So yeah. that's kind of the background. That's, that's a phenomenal life story. I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, uh, you've kind of paved the way, I think, for mm. everybody who's looking for you know, activism and, and true social justice through, you know, your lifestyle. I think, I think you, you've paved the legacy for, for a lot of people. I hope so. I hope so. So many people paved the way for me. You know, when I look back on my life, both individually, I knew people who died in the civil rights movement. I knew people who were killed by the police. Those, some of those folks that I was demonstrating with didn't make it through that time. So I understood the sacrifices that people made for me to go to Yale and how important it was for me to go there and get whatever I could and bring it back to serve my people. Of course. And, you know, on the topic of demonstrations, you know, recently, um, just a couple months ago, there were huge, you know, massive protests regarding the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, you know, and and what was your reaction to this movement? Do, Do you think that these protests caused true substantive change or were they simply performative if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. no i think the protest is always about substantive change and this is not the first this is a reiteration but this is certainly not the first time that black lives matter has been the rallying call since michael brown and ferguson and trayvon martin in florida i remember going to florida for a lawyer's conference years ago and i wore a hoodie and said i'm going to florida and i'm going to wear a hoodie because I am Trayvon Martin. And so we've known for as long as we've been Black in America what it means to be uh, hunted and preyed upon by the police and by vigilantes uh, acting supposedly in the name of justice and law and order. We understand that. And so these uh, latest protests are merely a continuation. I think that it's broadening Um, the scope of having more and more people become activated and radicalized. So many people looking at the murder of George Floyd in the midst of this pandemic were absolutely horrified. And that is compelling and important. And it, it does advance the cause of justice in this country for people to be able to march and to be radicalized and activated to say no more. I am not going to stand by and let people be killed in this way. Right. And, and for those that are looking to change the norm, 
you know, and actually activate themselves and mobilize a grassroots movement, you know, what advice do you have for these people? You know, all these young, you know, talented and passionate kids are all looking to change the world, especially right now. Um, So how do we move forward and address these movements? It's, it is always about organize, 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 get involved with an organization. If you don't have, you normally, you don't have to start one. I'm not in favor of starting organizations because we have so many and some that are historical, that are legacy organizations, some that maybe have been become complacent. They need young energy. They need people to step into those spaces and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing about this? So many places I am privileged to go to raise the question, what about police misconduct? What about police brutality? What about economic justice? What about homelessness? Just being able to get into those spaces and raise the questions and change the conversation. I heard Danny Glover say many years ago, Mm -hmm. That it is so important, if nothing else, that one person who may consider themselves a radical or not, but one person with a conscience can change the entire conversation. Often, I was told as a lawyer, well, you know, your client is the only one who's complaining about this situation, almost as if that was a a sin or a rebuke. You know, they wanted to label my client as a troublemaker because she's the only one who's ever complained about the situation. And my response was always, you know what? Black people sat at the back of the bus for decades until Rosa Parks said, I'm not giving up my seat. One woman said, I'm not giving up my seat today. And an entire movement was sparked and resulted in where we are now. Right. So it, I think what you're pointing out is it only takes one conscious mind, you know, mm-hmm. to spark a movement. And in this case, it's taken thousands of, you know, innocent African-American bodies, which is a little disheartening, but we have to fight the fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, kind of on this topic of systemic racism in the United States, you know, mass incarceration has become one of the offshoots of this entire disproportionate disadvantage towards the African-American community. You know, with over 2 million people imprisoned in the United States and growing rapidly, you know, and this issue has followed its way to Alameda County in, in our county in California. And so talk a little bit more about our situation in in your county and and what measures you or the county are fighting and need to take. So in Alameda County, let's start with youth justice where many people are able to get that. In Alameda County, 86% of all felony arrests, juvenile felony arrests are black or brown children. Black or brown children are not 86% of all youth in this county. And so when you look at that statistic, you understand that there is something seriously wrong with the way the justice system is operating in black and brown communities. Because when you take a kid and you criminalize a kid, you are undermining and um, destabilizing the entire family. And not just the kid, but the kid's family and the next generation of the kid. Um, And so when we look at that, we understand that it has far-reaching impacts. 
when we look at mass incarceration, over, I believe, 65% of the people in Santa Rita County Jail are black or brown. And we are not 65% of the people in Alameda County. In Oakland, black and brown people are still five times more likely to be stopped by the Oakland police than a white person who lives here. That's not a coincidence. We have a criminal justice system that is built upon criminalizing, incarcerating black and brown people. It's built upon criminalizing and incarcerating poor people. We criminalize poverty. And too often black and brown people because of the wealth gap in this country and the legacy of slavery, as well as indigenous people, we are the ones who are caught in the poverty cycle. And so we're the ones that go to jail, that can't afford a lawyer. We have a public defender's office in Alameda County that has literally one fourth of the budget of the district attorney's office. And so there is systemically built in disparities that are intended to per perpetuate the legacy of slavery and of white supremacy. That is what the criminal justice system is designed to do and that is what it has done in Alameda County. Alameda is in, I believe we're number nine in terms of, of the country of the number of people that we have sent to death row from this county. We're number five or four or five in the state, but we're number nine in the country. So we are right at the top, in the top 10 in terms of how we mistreat black and brown people who live here. Right, and you kind of started off this question talking about youth prisons. Um, and there is a youth prison abolition forming and especially with uh, district attorneys like Chester Boudin in San Francisco attempting to abolish the youth prisons. And so on this topic, do you believe in prison reform or prison abolition and why? And just in case you do believe in prison abolition, you know, what are the alternatives to incarceration? Especially with, like you said, you know, the prison system perpetuating systemic racism it's in our county and in the United States. Mm -hmm. So whether you say you are for reform or an abolitionist, I think the key question and the key realization is to understand that prison is not the answer. It is not the answer. Right. And particularly for youth, yes, I definitely am an abolitionist when it comes to youth prisons. And I believe firmly that it is absolutely criminal to prosecute young people below the age of 25 as if they were adults. Because no matter how heinous the crime is, the science as we know it, is that young people are not fully developed to the point of uh, the age of 25, to the point of understanding the significance uh, and the consequences right. of the conduct that they might engage in. You know, Brian Stevenson, the um, director of the Equal Justice Institute and the author of Just Mercy, right. says that none of us want to be judged by the worst thing we've ever done in our lives. And most of us can say we've done the worst thing we've ever done in our lives we did before we were age, the age of 25. Some of us after that. Right. But then again, that goes to the question of prison reform or abolition. We cannot solve our problems by putting people in cages. We have created systemically in this society, certainly trauma for folks that has resulted in people 
engaging in violent acts that needs to be addressed. The number one cause of death in this country is suicide. And that speaks to our failure to address mental health issues and what we're doing to people. And so if we have a suicide problem of the magnitude that we do, when you compare that to how we resolve our issues by then incarcerating people, we don't deal with mental health issues, obviously, then that tells you that the system that we have created is not working. And it it serves another purpose. And even in California, which is at the head of mass incarceration, they changed the name of the California Department of Corrections to say it's the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. I have some clients that have a different, say that acronym has a different meaning. But the point is, if we are talking about rehabilitation, we're not going to achieve that in a prison system, not in the current prison system. And so I think that the next step for us as we look at how to address recovery and abolishing mass incarceration is that we have to look at restorative justice and we've got to start with baby steps in our neighborhoods and take it all the way through the system and bring people out of cages and recognize that after 30 40 years of incarceration that person is really no longer a threat to society and the model that we have created that says that they are is absolutely ridiculous Right. And, you know, you were, you were formerly a candidate for the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, and you ran an increasingly progressive criminal justice reform campaign. So hypothetically, let's just say I gave you God's hand, right? And you had the power to change any law, procedure, or rule regarding criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, or police accountability. You know, what would you do as your first or maybe multifaceted accomplishment? And and where would you focus on? Ah, it's a great question. Um, One of the things (laughs) things that I was um, privileged to to explain to people as an advocate for criminal justice reform running for district attorney is that I've seen the system from the beginning (laughs) to the end. I've been, when you start at the end, I have been having represented people who worked inside the California Department of Correction. I've been to Pelican Bay. I've been to Corcoran. I've been to CSP Solano and Mule Creek and uh, CMF Vacaville. I've been inside those places and seen what we have done there and how it's not working. Uh, COVID-19 certainly has highlighted that for everyone that you have created a place not only where the people that you're trying to hurt are in danger, but the people who work there are in danger. And we never, we need to address that. So I understand that. On the front end, I was a battered woman who was arrested by the Albany police and prosecuted by the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. So as a black woman living in America, trying to survive as a single mom, I understand how that system was mobilized to destabilize my life and everything in my life. And and so in between that, I've represented cops, I've sued cops. And so I understand that the connection between, you asked me what would I do first? My first objective would be to break loose (laughs) the connection between my office 
as the district attorney's office and the police departments that are being protected by the district attorney's office. I believe as a lawyer that my job as a district attorney is to serve as a minister of justice. Right. And that is a completely different outlook from the way that the system is operating now. The office of district attorney, not just here, but across the country, DAs stand for the police, they protect the police, right or wrong, uh, they hire police officers. Uh, so internally, from my perspective, and, and being able to implement that, I would take the position that my office is an independent office that is supposed to be about justice. And what does justice look like? We need to redefine justice. It is not how many people can I send to Pelican Bay. It is not how many people can I put on death row. Right. It is about my community and healing my community from the point of the officer on the street to the point of the officer inside the prison. And how do I disrupt? So as initially coming in, it's about how do you disrupt that pipeline? Because that's what it is. The DA right now is just cycling people along. We're like the conductor on the railroad of mass incarceration. We would be on strike, <laughs> okay? Right. We would stop that train. We would look to see where has the train malfunctioned? How many people do we know of that this office has wrongfully convicted? Right. What are we doing about youth justice? It is, is it just something in name or are we actually looking at how do we impact the lives of children from the age of 10 to 25? Right. What are we doing? And so there's a number of things. Once you adopt that perspective, then yeah, God gives me a lot of <laughs> things that I can do. <laughs> right. And changing perspectives, you know, that's a very difficult task, especially now, you know, COVID-19, I think, has further alienated and exhausted the American people. And I'm sure a lot of the communities and the minorities in Alameda County. And so in terms of changing perspective, let's just say, right, you're, you're the district attorney, you have God's hand, you know, like you said, you're the minister of justice, right? And you're an independent body that serves on its own. Well, I would ask, you know, how would you go through such a sclerotic bureaucracy of, you know, American government and actually abolish or reform prisons, right? How would that process look like to you? So what people are learning about the office of district attorney is right. that it has a huge budget and it has huge discretion. Once right. that money is allocated to the district attorney and he or she has the capacity to go and get more money for right. programs that they want. You know, if I want to have a program, a reentry program, if I want to partner with right. reentry services and reentry organizations, I can do that in however I choose. I can allocate way more money to that than what we've seen. Wow. Um, so there's huge potential there to say, okay, we are in COVID-19, one of the most critical things that is has been advocated for is how do we get people out of prisons right. who don't deserve to die? We're giving people a death sentence. So that means if you're gonna release people, where are they going? 
are you just releasing them to Alameda County and they can figure out where they need to be or their families can figure out where they need to be? No, if I'm the district attorney, part of my responsibility is certainly working with the probation department, working with the courts to the extent necessary, working with the local police, certainly working with families and communities and nonprofit organizations to make sure that we are bringing people back in a safe and responsible manner that does not endanger the health and safety of this community. And we're doing it in a way that doesn't set them up just to go back into jail because that's the only stable, safe place that they know. So that's a disruptive, different way of approaching the criminal justice system and the crisis that we're dealing with right now today, whether it's people coming out of uh, CDCR or people coming out of San Quentin County, I mean, Santa Rita, excuse me, County Jail. Um, my view is that my responsibility as a minister of justice and as part of my role in maintaining public safety is to be very proactive in that regard. Um, additionally, understanding that COVID has frayed nerves and put people in places that they don't necessarily want to be, then I've got to see how do I intervene in situations potentially where they're there's domestic violence or there's child abuse. What is happening with um, those survivors and people who are put in those situations? What is my responsibility? How do I, as a member of this community, a, a minister of the justice of this community, how am I helping to resolve those issues and to provide alternatives for people in those situations? I want to be proactive because these are real everyday problems. And one of the things that I, I brought to um, the DA race as well as, as just being a lawyer is that I represent everyday people. I don't represent perfect people. And people have problems, they have disputes, um, and we have to be proactive in how we resolve that. Right. And so you're a civil rights lawyer. Um, yes. And you're also part of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in the Bay Area, yes. um, which yes. adds an emphasis on protecting the legal rights of poor people, immigrants, and refugees with a special commitment to African-Americans. Now, this organization was actually established by John F. Kennedy after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. And I'm sure you're aware of this, this quote. It's, um, it's actually pretty touching. It's, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere you know, bold and courageous words from late, great Martin Luther King Jr. And during this, what I like to describe, you know, inflection point in history, um, how do we as people, activists, or in your case, lawyers, civil rights lawyers, overcome the burdens and power of injustice? You know, what are we determined to do as part of, you know, living citizens in, in this society? Mm -hmm. So um, the Lawyers Committee is an organization of which I'm a member and it's been near and dear to my heart for a couple of decades now. Um, John F. Kennedy did call together a number of national leaders to start something called the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Yeah. Our local San Francisco Bay Area branch was founded uh, in the wake of the assassination of Dr. King in 1968 by local lawyers 
who said, I want to do something similar to what we see now in the uh, wake of the George Floyd murder is that some lawyers are saying, I want to do something. Those lawyers, to their credit, did something. They started this coalition of lawyers and activists and called themselves the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and they began advocating for civil rights, both in terms of economic opportunities for the Black community in San Francisco, education opportunities. They started bringing lawsuits, and they were bound and determined they were going to tear down the institutional structures of racism in San Francisco. That was a big big task at that time. And it's still a big task. And the Lawyers Committee still has much work to do because I think what we know, what all of us often underestimate is how resilient racism is in this country. And often we win a battle and we feel good about that. Um, and yet our institutions treat that as just, well, that was a blip, that was a one-off. Um, and so it's hard to get sustaining, lasting, sustaining change. And ultimately, that's what we have to be about, is creating sustaining change. It's not enough to win one election. You got to be able to build off of that, to use the power of whatever office you win uh, to extend that victory to to as broad a realm as possible. Um, And so, yes, Dr. King's statement, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That is one of the models of my law firm. You will find it on every web page that we have. Um, because we stand on that. We understand that uh, the injustice that is visited upon Black and Brown and Native American people that's embedded in the fabric of this country is a threat to the justice and the lives of every person here, white people as well. In Alameda County, it's certainly in Oakland, we recently had the murder of Joshua Pollock, uh, who was a white man who was mistaken for a black man. Um, But because if you allow black and brown and indigenous people to be brutalized by the system, then you give the system and those who operate in that realm permission to brutalize anybody. Moms in demonstrating in Seattle, they have permission to brutalize them because they've been operating with impunity towards people who don't look like them. Or or even Moms for Housing in Oakland, right? Right. Being militarized because they did not have a place to stay. A fundamental part of society is having a living quarters. And because, you know, they were facing destitution and they were moms, they decided to stay. And they had tanks called upon them. Mm-hmm. That's outrageous. That's a waste of a budget, and it's the mm-hmm. further criminalization of those that are low socioeconomic status, which r- relates to African American and minority communities. Mm-hmm. And so nowadays, we see, you know, politics and activists take this extreme approach, and a certain majority likes to call it radicalism, like you've talked about. Um, do you agree with this statement that there's a radical faction within American democracy? 
And is radicalism the answer to reforming the criminal justice system? You know, what merits a true change in the corrupt systems ingrained in the American justice system? Well, I certainly hope there's a radical faction and I hope I'm part of it. Right. Uh, you know, my, my religion teaches me that Jesus was a radical, okay? I know from what I've read and know about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that he was a radical, make no mistake about it. He was a complete radical. And radicals are people for whom injustice is not acceptable. It is absolutely not acceptable. And therefore one is committed to do whatever you can to fight against injustice. Right. And to that end, yes, we need radicals. When I was in law school, they taught us that all progress depends upon the unreasonable man. And I've understood that, that all progress requires somebody in the room or on the street or in the conversation who says, that's not acceptable. And there's going to be people who are going to say, well, we've always done it that way. And, you know, why are you challenging the status quo? Because it's wrong. It's wrong. And if you're not radical, you attempted not to say that. Okay. But that is on which all progress depends. And so it's so important to have people who are not willing to accept the status quo, who are willing to push the envelope. When I joined Alexander versus Yale, there was no law saying that what happened to me uh, being sexually harassed by my professor, there was no law that said that was illegal. <laughs> we had to make the law. And so much of what being a civil rights lawyer is, is about making the law. And that's so important. And so when you're looking at criminal justice reform and abolishing mass incarceration, you have to look to history as Michelle Alexander taught us. Right. And you have to look at the history of America and the foundations yeah. on which these institutions rest. Right. And when you do that and you understand why we have prisons and why we put people in prisons and why we have black and brown people in prisons and, and criminalize people in the ways that we do, then you have to say that's wrong and we have to stop it. And yes, I am going to be the person who is committed to stop it. Right. You can I, call me whatever you want to. <laughs> right, right. And I, I think I remember in history class, uh, my teacher teaching us that the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution, you know, mm -hmm. three revolutions that corresponded together uh, mm -hmm. were, were radical. You know, they, they, were, they were deemed terrorists against an organized society. Mm -hmm. And I think if we look back on history, you know, slave rebellions, and any form of uprising is deemed radical because it defeats the norm. That's right. It challenges the status quo in ways that it's it not comfortable. You know, Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Well, the person who's gonna make the demand is gonna be called a radical. When right. Dr. King took a stand against the Vietnam War, people said, oh, he's just, he's gone too far. He's right. too radical. And he has no right to say that. And he said, yes, I am a warrior for humanity. And I'm a radical warrior for humanity. And what you're doing is wrong. And I'm going to stand against that. And right. so that was so important. There are lessons to be learned from that for all of us. Right. And, well, it's, it's been great 
talking with you and conversing about, you know, history and, and modern day topics. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll see you on the stage soon, you know, fighting for the same justices. Um, and, and those that don't know what I'm referring to, that's a foreshadow for the next couple of years. Uh, but yeah, again, you know, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'll definitely plug your Law Institute in the description and your social media handles as well. All right, then. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. It is so important that we document our movement, our objectives, and that we have a, a, re a record of the history of the times. And so I'm honored to be with you to record something in the midst of the pandemic. Right. And hopefully it will enlighten people to what we were talking about yeah. in 2020. Hopefully. I mean, unfortunately, because of COVID, we couldn't conduct this interview in a more professional manner. But uh, <laughs> you know, we have to go with the flow sometimes. But sometimes we have to disrupt the flow. You know, that's right. It's all about timing. Um, yep. So, so thank you again. And uh, we'll be talking very soon, hopefully. All right, then. All thank right. you. Have you a great Take day. care.